The following episode of the 9pm edict contains politics, strong language, dodgy opinions, and adult themes. Labor leader Anthony Albanese has just tested positive for coronavirus. It means the opposition leader will have to isolate for seven days, just as the election campaign was beginning to pick up momentum. Hello, I'm Stilgerian. It's Friday the 22nd of April 2022. Welcome to the 9pm election unhinging week the 2nd. In a written statement from the Labor camp tonight, Anthony Albanese has revealed he tested positive after a routine PCR test taken just before he was due to travel to WA. His entire campaign will now be suspended. Instead of a punishing schedule of marginal seat visits, he'll be isolating in his Sydney home for the next seven days. Does this give Scott Morrison a campaign advantage? Well, Anthony Albanese can at least be assured his opponent chose a six rather than a five-week campaign, and he'll now be relying on his trusted Labor allies to carry the show without him. Well, 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 that changes things, doesn't it? Or does it? Let's see. Let's see. Uh, Before I go any further, yes, this is a day late. For some reason on Thursday... I just kind of slept most of the day. <sighs> Look, I'm getting old and, and I, I have a certain long-term medical condition. These things happen. Uh, so, yes, this is today, Friday, um, and the episode with John Birmingham, uh, he's had a day as well. That'll be happening on the weekend. So we're just running a day or two behind schedule. That's nothing to worry about. Well, Albo, testing positive for the Rona. In the days before that, too, actually in the hours before that, he had visited an aged care facility. So, I mean, he does mask up, so that helps. But we all know how well um, the vaccination programs in aged care facilities has gone, don't we? And then the night before, uh, Albo had shaken Scott Morrison's hand at the Sky News leaders' debate. But Scott Morrison has already had the Rona. Doesn't mean he can't get it again, but it does reduce the chances. I'll come back to the debate shortly. So, Albo out for seven days, or at least isolating at home. Curiously, a couple of weeks ago, James Masola at the Nine Papers, uh, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald and the the Age and uh, the online website, the Brisbane Times and all of that, we used to call them Fairfax, remember? even though they weren't Fairfax because Fairfax family at Warwick Fairfax had fucked it all up decades. But anyway, anyway, those papers. Uh, he wrote about the contingency plan. Um, he said Labor had already issued strict protocols for journalists uh, who are on the trail uh, with, with Albo on the Albo bus. Uh, you have to be triple vaccinated. You have to wear an N95 mask in most settings, take a rapid test every three days. Anyone who tests positive is off the bus. Uh, the, I note that the rules for the Morrison bus uh, are less strict. Essentially, it's follow the rules of the state or territory you're in. Um, I'm not going to make a thing out of that, though. Uh, but the, the contingency plan was that senior shadow ministers, such as Richard Miles, Penny Wong, Jim Chalmers, Mark Butler, would play 
a more prominent role if Mr Albanese was sidelined, taking on uh, the job of being the leading spokesperson for the party on a particular day, depending on what the issue of the day might be. And uh, Mr Albanese, if he was well enough to do so, would conduct campaign events via video conference, perhaps also do press conferences that way, and so on. And then uh, James Absola notes, for Labor and its leader, COVID-19 is yet another risk to manage during the campaign, which is a bit like saying, and tomorrow the sun will rise in the west and there will be weather which we have to consider. Of course it's a risk. Risk management is, or at least should be, a core part of running any organisation. So it will be interesting to see how this is handled. I mean, and it should always be. Uh, any organisation obviously needs to be able to cope when one individual, for whatever reason, is not there that day. There is so much focus, though, on the individuals of leadership, aren't there? You know, it's this. I know they call it a presidential style campaign, but it is. It's 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 all about Morrison versus Albanese. Which culminates, of course, in the leaders' debates. Now, the the first leaders' debate uh, was on Wednesday night. Uh, it was uh, on Sky News, and they also put it on uh, well on their website, so we could all see it. So, for anyone who's saying, "Oh, why is the first leaders' debate on a subscription-only channel?" It's, like, it's there on the fucking internet for anyone to look at. Don't be such sooks. And yes, I know some people were kind of kicking off that, you know, why isn't it free-to-air broadcast television? But I think, you know, we have had the internet now commercially available in Australia for 27, 28 years, more than a generation. You know, maybe, maybe if you don't have the internet, you could get people to fax you the debate. Anyway, here's some of the reporting on the debate from Nine News. The Prime Minister's trouble had a slower burn and came over this response to a question from the mother of a child with autism. Jenny and I have been blessed. We've got two children that haven't had to go through that. And so for parents with children who are disabled, I can only try and understand. I think every child is a blessing for parents. Some took offence at Scott Morrison's reply and he has apologised. I meant no offence but why I said last night, but I accept that it has caused offence uh, to people. I think people would also appreciate that I would have had no such intention of suggesting that anything other than every child is a blessing is true. Every single child is precious. The two leaders also clashed over the new security deal that the Solomon Islands has struck with China. This isn't so much a Pacific step up, it's a Pacific stuff up. When something of this significance takes place, why would you take China's side? That's an outrageous slur. The coalition always wanted a national security fight during this election, but the Solomon Islands deal does raise serious questions about the government's handling of the affair. The security agreement between China and the Solomons is a massive failure of our foreign policy. Yes, sorry for the intrusion of uh, Nine's Chris Ullman into the pod. I mean, the great thing about Chris Ullman is that his initials are, are already halfway to telling you what sort of person he is.
Now, the Solomon Islands thing is huge, but I'll actually come back to that in the next episode over the weekend when I chat with John Birmingham because I'm sure we both have uh, views on that. The blessed comment, though. Now, other people have already said what needs to be said about the idea that you're not blessed with children unless they're perfect by some definition of perfect. I note one thing, though, that once more, and there's a lot of this around, Scott Morrison seems only to be able to relate to other people's experiences by making it about himself. That here's uh, a woman on the debate talking about her autistic child. Uh, I don't know how old the child was. I didn't pay that much attention. Um, but, But then immediately Morrison wants to talk about his own children. Psychologists have a a concept called theory of mind. Now, that's the capacity, uh, and I'm quoting from Wikipedia here, the capacity to understand other people by ascribing mental states to them. That is, surmising what is happening in their mind. Uh, It goes on to say, such mental states may be different from one's own state and include beliefs, desires, intentions, emotions and thoughts – you know, that other people have their own beliefs, desires, intentions, emotions and thoughts. And, quote, possessing uh, possessing a functional theory of mind is considered crucial for success in everyday human social interactions. People use such a theory when analysing, judging and inferring others' behaviours. I put forward the idea that Scott Morrison is not so fabulous at having a theory of mind. I'm not a psychologist. Um, but but he always does seem to want to bring back any understanding of someone else's situation to his own situation. Now, maybe I'm being harsh. Maybe that is just what we call empathy, Although, as I say that aloud, I think, you idiot. No, that is not what empathy is. And I know that people on the autism spectrum sometimes have difficulties with understanding and uh, I don't want to say they don't have theory of mind. They do know that other people have different thoughts, but that is a thing with autism, isn't it? That there's a difficulty... um, I'm going down a rabbit hole, but you know what I mean. I'm being overly cautious about getting that right. But I don't want to medicalise it either. I I mean, Scott Morrison, I don't think he's autistic. I think he's just a psychopath or at least a sociopath. I don't know. But it is interesting that this week that has just been another example of Scott Morrison when presented with the situation involving someone else's emotions, it's just immediately back to himself. I don't know that that's right. (music) 
Okay, time for my reporting whinge of the week in this election campaign. And today I'm picking on Michael Reed, R-E-A-D, at the Australian Financial Review, uh, who had a story headlined uh, earlier this week. When was this? The 14th. Um, when was that? I don't know. Oh, last week. Sorry. I've only found out about it this week. The headline was, I'm travelling with Scott Morrison and we haven't met a real voter yet. He writes, does Michael Reid. If you think being on the campaign trail with Prime Minister Scott Morrison means meeting real voters, think again. Mr Morrison has sewn safety harnesses, thrown baseballs, sorry, basketballs, and inspected native timber, but he has so far mostly avoided the activity you would think took precedence in a re-election campaign, meeting voters. The common thread at these venues, he says, which were mostly business venues, is that access to the public has been limited or non-existent. The highly managed, uh, sorry, the highly stage managed appearances, which have been almost exclusively in marginal seats, sometimes include funding announcements. Mate, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? Here's the thing, this, this, his opening sentence, if you think being on the campaign trail with Prime Minister Scott Morrison means meeting real voters, think again. Yeah, fucking think again, Michael Reid. Why, why did you think that was what was about? And you say, you say, well, if you want to meet a real voter, mate, if journalists want to meet a real voter, they can literally go to any street in Australia, in any town or suburb, and talk to passers-by, and you can do that any day of the year. Seriously, all you'll get from being with the Prime Minister on the bus or being with Albanese on the bus are set-piece questions and set-piece answers and, of course, the lame photo opportunity of the day, usually involving high-vis vests for some reason or some... Really, you know, I mean, football with the kiddies, obviously, that's another one. So to get that, I mean, that's a thing you need to do in the election campaign. I'm not saying that shouldn't be covered, but just send a cadet. They can have a phone with them and, and the senior journalists can just, like, text them questions to ask along the way. And you want a, a photo of the photo op of the day? Well, just buy that from Australian Associated Press or somebody. You don't have to send your own photographer to get this basically the same photograph as everyone else. You know, news resources are limited these days, aren't they? To quote Wikipedia, although it was initially believed that remoras fed off particulate matter from the host's meals that is, the shark that they attach themselves to, this is shown to be false. In reality, their diets are composed primarily primarily, of the host's faeces. And the same can be said for journalists on the tour bus during an election campaign. I'm reminded uh, again of something I wrote a decade ago. I mean, more than a decade ago. It was February 2012, uh, back when this podcast actually did contain edicts, and I made this edict. This is edict number 19. Whereas the art, craft, alleged profession and entrenched fucked 
tartary that goes by the name of journalism in this wide brown land has clearly reached a new summit of derp today. It is time to make a few changes around here. Canberra Press Gallery journalists, you are going to start reporting on news. Real news. Not gossip. Not titillation. Not the pathetic, self-centred little adrenaline rushes that you get from darting about those corridors on the hill or tawdry little meetings in the bars, back alleys and beats of Manuka. Oh no. News. Things that are true. Things that matter. Things that will make a difference to Australians and the world. Things that will help us understand how this world of ours works. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to expose you to the world. You won't be allowed to spend your entire time geofenced to the city limits of Canberra or a 200 metre radius from wherever the politicians have summoned you with their media alert emails just before it happens. Oh no, oh no, you will be required at gunpoint if necessary actually at gunpoint even if not necessary, to spend 50% of your working time well out of that tight, self-referential little orbit. You're going to do the press gallery three months on, three months off. On those off months, you'll be reporting from elsewhere, from uh, Mount Isa in Queensland, from Burnie in Tasmania, uh, from Plimpton in the Adelaide suburbs, from uh, Macquarie Fields in Sydney, from Sunshine in Melbourne, from postcodes chosen at random for three months at a time. And for those three months, you will be forbidden from watching TV, listening to the radio or reading Capital City or National newspapers. You will spend your days compiling reports on what's happening in and relevant to the people of your assigned postcode. And every evening at 6pm, you will stand in a public place on a wooden crate and read aloud to anyone who cares to stop and listen the results of your work that day. You shall speak for as long or as short as you feel the need. But at the end of that time, you shall be required to stand and listen to everything the assembled citizens say to you, and you shall not be allowed to respond. And then at the end of that time, each and every day of the three months, you shall be taken back to your assigned accommodation with an average family chosen from that postcode. Averages chosen by a team at the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And you will sit down, shut the fuck up, and eat what they eat, listen to what they say, and learn. Now, if you don't like this scheme, a scheme that James Purser called a fly-in, fly-out press gallery, that's fine. I am not a harsh man. You do have a choice. You can choose between this, the fly-in, fly-out press gallery, or just a simply fly-out-and-drown press gallery. The choice is yours. But I tell you what, I advise you to choose option A, because there's plenty of citizens in this country who'd be much, much happier to see you face option B. But it's your call. As I record uh, this episode on uh, Friday afternoon, the 22nd of April, 
we are a few hours short of the official election candidate lists appearing at the Electoral Commission website. Uh, they go through a quality assurance process to make sure they've got everything right before publishing the lists, which is good, right? Uh, but as it happens, uh, the ABC and Anthony Green's team uh, have worked off the uh, the unofficial information and their candidate lists are already up at the ABC election website. So uh, check this podcast's webpage for the link. It's abc.net.au slash elections. You can click through from there. Um, but uh, for those of you who haven't um, hit the podcast webpages before, I do provide a, like a comprehensive list of links in every episode. It's almost like academic paper level citation to say this is where I got all the information from and it's worth a look through you may find some interesting rabbit holes to go down so that's all at the 9pmedic.com and just uh, find the appropriate episode um what else do I need to tell you in the housekeeping oh yes um on on those candidates I haven't had a chance to look yet so uh the next episode of this election mini series will be on the Thursday the 28th of April uh I'll get back to being on the Thursdays again um uh, but before before then I will be talking to John Birmingham as I said um we were going to be recording today we're going to record on this coming weekend the Anzac Day long weekend and so you can expect an episode with John Birmingham at some point in the next couple of days. If you have a conversation topic or a trigger word to throw in, uh, be quick. Officially, the deadline has passed, but if you get it in before we record, uh, yeah, you get it in, so to speak. Don't, don't be dirty. Dirty. Uh, if you would like to have a trigger word or a conversation topic to throw into episodes of this podcast, you need to become a subscriber uh, or I'm going to rejig this soon, um, get in an appropriate level tip. Uh, go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip. And uh, I must stress, this podcast is made possible by you, the generous listener. And this episode in particular, it's thanks to Josephine Trott. Thanks, Josephine. And to Dr. Trent Yarwood, um, who is a friend of the pod. He's been on the pod, as I'm sure you know. He has renewed his Edict 03 Cheeky Red annual subscription, which gets him a conversation topic to throw into um, into the mix. He's mostly used that to troll other guests who are friends because that's, that's just the way we are here. If you want to join them, if you want to support these election podcasts in particular because they're outside what I'd plan to do for 2022, please go to the 9pm slash tip. Every dollar helps me live. And, and I think we want that. I know I want that. I must admit that so far this election campaign has kind of, <laughs> kind of been a bit short on policy discussion, um, you know, an awful lot of gotchas and whatever. Um, so I'd, I haven't picked a policy to talk about this week. I'm sorry. But what I will talk about is Vote Compass. Now, Vote Compass, uh, which 
is run in conjunction with the ABC. You've probably seen it. it. It describes itself as a tool developed by political scientists to help you explore how your views align with those of the election candidates. And it's pretty, I, you know, a, a half a million Australians have already looked at it this year. But um, how it works is um, you answer a lot of questions about your political views. And it then shows you a whole bunch of charts saying, well, if they're your political views, that's how you compare with the Coalition or Labor or the Greens on that set of issues. And as a friend of the pod, Cameron Wilson, noticed uh, at or noted at Crikey, uh, he said the ABC has had to defend Vote Compass from people who were upset because they were told... Uh, which party their policy views align with. The problem is, uh, mostly, that many people who identified as Labor voters have been told their views more closely align with the Greens. Uh, And Cam uh, picks one particularly viral tweet from John Gar 77003277, so obviously an important political commentator in this country and on Twitter, uh, John said, just completed ABC Vote Compass. It says I'm a Green voter. Actually, I'm a Social Democrat who votes Labor. How did this result happen? Well, John, it's because your perception of what Labor is about is wrong. And in fact, what you believe is closer to what the Greens are doing. Pretty fucking basic, and it explains this at the front of the thing. Uh, Cam goes on to say, uh, to write in his report, dozens of people replied in chorus, lamenting the same result. Guardian Australia columnist Van Badham, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a sentence, starting a sentence that way is always a win, isn't it? Van Badham even criticised Vote Compasses being deceptive for not taking into consideration, quote, the likelihood of a party being able to deliver the policies you like. That's despite Vote Compass actually saying it just compares policy preferences with your policy preferences, not anything else. And some people, said Cam, also noted that Labor had moved further towards the conservative side of social issues on the social issues axis compared with previous iterations of Vote Compass. Uh, Well, yes. Uh, This is no great mystery. Just look at the policies. But, of course, it's ABC bias. The ABC is so biased. Oh, look. Okay, I did Vote Compass today. Um, and Vote Compass has two, uh, two axes, conservative to progressive on social things and left to right on economic things. And it shows the ALP kind of almost slap-bang centre, uh, the coalition of the Liberal Party and the National Party. It says LNP, but the LNP is only a thing in Queensland. How often do I have to keep fucking reminding you people of this, you stupid cunts? I mean, about three quarters of the way across to the economic right and social uh, conservatism. Uh, The Greens, it puts all the way up at the economic left and nearly all the way up at the uh, socially progressive uh, top. 
I'm about midway between ALP and Greens. Whatever. I have a and I'm gonna get on to why I think all this is bullshit, but I will say many people who follow me and uh, many friends, I know when they've posted their thing, they've ended up more towards the Greens, uh, quite a distance from Labor. And this, to me, points out one of the, the great weaknesses in this. It's only on these two axes. And the questions are kind of not very detailed. Like, it asks you about defence budgets. Should the defence budget be about the same, a little bit more, a lot more, or a little bit more, less, or a lot less, or you don't have a view. Now, that doesn't take into account what you think the the defence budget should be about. So my personal view is that there's a NATO standard, there's a broad global benchmark figure of 2% of your uh, GDP or government spend going to defence. Um, fine, I'm fine with that if it's about what other people are doing, but the question is then about what is it being spent on? And I have serious, serious questions about what it's being spent on, but I don't have any problem with a nation spending about the standard figure on its defence because, let's face it, the world the world is not a nice place and having a defence budget that's adequate should be something that we do. Yes, yes, I know, war is nasty and killing people is nasty and all of that. But, you know, things aren't nice. We do have to take that into account. So that's just one example. Back in 2013, I actually wrote uh, a piece for ZDNet. 2013, got nine years ago. Um, well, it's three election cycles, isn't it? I ripped into Vote Compass um, because... Senator Erica Betts, the extremely right-wing conservative um, Liberal Party senator for Tasmanian, had called Vote Compass Orwellian. And I wrote a headline which said, Yes, Senator Betts, ABC's Vote Compass is indeed Orwellian. Ooh, ooh, I can hear you kind of objecting to that already. Okay, let me read the story. Here's... here's Pretty much what I wrote, I'm going to kind of riff off it a bit, but here's pretty much what I wrote nearly a decade ago, nine years ago. It's not every day that I find myself agreeing with Senator Erica Betts, but the Tasmanian Liberal was right to refer to Vote Compass, the heavily promoted political analysis tool on the ABC website, as Orwellian in a recent speech, though for completely different reasons than those the Senator outlines in his ramshackle construction of splintered logic, the wildly oscillating inputs uh, of his over-imaginative uh, imaginative political bias detector and a sprinkling of quotes from famous dead white men that his audience will perhaps have heard of, though never read. That's an 85-word sentence. Um, I edited it. My editor let me do that sort of thing back then. Okay, I continue. Vote Compass is yet another. It's a yet another in a long series of really simple systems, some might say simplistic, I would, for classifying people's political views, which began with the left-right spectrum that was invented during the French Revolution in 1789. And that's the thing. Look up 
left wing, right wing, that's the French Revolution. And if and, and and I'm riffing off it, as I said, but quite frankly, if that's the level of analysis that you put into political issues today, what quarter of a millennium out of date? Okay, so how Vogue Compass works. As I've described, you fill out the questionnaire. They do some maths. They see uh, how you line up with those two axes of, of politics. And that's it. It's it's just from conservative to liberal uh, on two axes, social issues and economic issues. Now, Back then, in uh, nine years ago, the ABC, ABC said participants might be surprised to see how their views line up. Well, of course. Um, Senator Abetz said that that's down to some underlying bias, which in turn is, quote, tantamount to inviting issues to consider changing their vote. Good heavens. How dare we suggest that that voters could change their vote after being presented with facts. How fucking dare they? Anyway, as I said, if there were really a secret conspiracy to change voter behaviour, yeah, that would be Orwellian. Uh, But unlike the senator and his ever-evescent political paranoia about all matters ABC, I reckon there's a simpler explanation. People's... Party political allegiances often come down to just tribal loyalties rather than their knowledge of actual polities, uh, policies. And their knowledge might be incomplete. Good heavens, it might be out of date or just plain wrong. That said, because I said I did say I agreed with Senator Abetz about the Orwellian label. That's on digital privacy grounds. Vocompass collects detailed information on your political beliefs, along with demographic data. You're asked to put in your age, gender, your location, down to the granularity of electorate, Uh, your education level, your income level. And quite frankly, the website only pays lip service to privacy. Um, Have a look at the Vote Compass privacy policy, um, if you can be asked um, reading it. It's all about re-identification. Now, all of these things always talk about how your data is anonymous. It's not. If you put in a bunch of information about you, that can be matched back to other databases. It is called re-identification. It's a science which has advanced incredibly in recent years. After all, How many 35-year-old females with a postgraduate degree and a salary of $80,000 in the electorate of Eden Monero are there? Not many, particularly if you narrow it down to a certain industry or how many people in the household and so on. So it's just a matter of seeing whether you already have someone matching that description in your database. And you've got that person's email address. Well, there we are. We can match that to other databases and so on. This is the bread and butter of database marketing companies, of political analysis companies, and indeed of the very company that the ABC hands this supposedly de-identified 
data too. So the Orwellian scenario is really that all of this data mining of your political beliefs can be matched with the psychology of how you make decisions. You know, I mean, have you ever done one of those quizzes? What breed of dog are you? You know, you did it years ago and asked them to email you the results. That Those things are really thinly disguised psychological profiling questionnaires. And then, given, you know, whichever news sites you're on, they've all got Google Analytics cookies in them. They've all got advertising cookies in them. So that means which news stories you read are fed back into the the pool of data belonging to these organisations. They know what you read. They know what advertising works for you. They know what products you buy if you use one of your, you know, your flyby card or whatever. Because what they do is say, oh, for, you know, point one percent of a discount on some future thing, we will match your shopping list to your credit card, to your email address and therefore your identity. And this is normal and nothing's changed since I wrote that nine years ago. Even the ABC today says, oh, well, yes, we want you to log into iView, the playback service, but we don't share your data with anyone. But it's like, that's bullshit. There are Google tracking cookies in the page. Every time you click through iView to look at a particular program, Google is made aware, and others are made aware, Facebook, whoever's in there, they are all given a log of every program you watch. It's right there in the page. Now, the ABC says, oh, we don't share the data, but it's like, just look at the code in the page. It's right there. I think this is more stupidity on the ABC's part than deliberate deception. I mean, Occam's Law, all of that. Occam's Razor, you know what I mean. But this is all there. The other thing I I hate about Vote Compass is that it puts the Greens at the far left of economic um, views. They're not. The Greens are not suggesting that all private property be made illegal and that everything is owned by the state. I mean, if you want to go hyper-communism, that's another whole order of magnitude down on the left-hand side of the economic spectrum. Um, you can say the same about freedom of speech. You know, you, you, the, the absolutists of freedom of speech will say there should be no restriction on any freedom of expression whatsoever, all the way down to abusive behaviour, to uh, child pornography, to whatever it might be, that, you know, there should be no restrictions whatever on it. And you can flip that round to the other end of the spectrum. Um, and yet Vote Compass shows, shows really quite a limited part of that. It's bullshit. Vote Compass is bullshit. By all means, use it to see where you are in relation uh, to the three main political parties, but but do be aware, it it's not good. It's really not very good.
Now, as I mentioned last week, uh, I have not yet deployed the internet domain hingeometer.com, but we are tracking the unhingedness levels of the election campaign. And we ended up, um, excuse me, at the end of last episode with a score of plus 16, which is quite a bit of unhinging. Since then, uh, the Australian is still screeching about the Greens, but not quite as screechily, so I'm going to uh, drop a, a hingeometer score off that minus one. Um, don't, don't bother keeping track of this. I will tell you the total at the end. Uh, journalists are, of course, still going on about Albanese and the gaff in Gotchagate and all this uh Bullshit. For example, on Sunday, uh, the Financial Review had a headline, Albanese Gaff Puts Coalition Back in Contention, claiming that, quote, support for Labor is bleeding away. And they assumed, you know, correlation equals causation, that it was because of the gaff that the news poll had gone down uh, in, in against uh, Albanese's... Uh, uh, favour a bit, probably, and it might even have been within margin of error. You know what these political journalists are like. Uh, but then two days later, in the same newspaper, the Australian Financial Review, there was the headline, Albanese Gaff Won't Change Vote, AFR Readers Say. Apparently, as they report, the majority of the readers of the Australian Financial Review say that uh, opposition leader Anthony Albanese's gaffe last week over the unemployment rate will not make them less likely to vote for him, with most uh, predicting either a Labor victory or a hung parliament. Now, I've already had my rant about the concept of a hung parliament, i.e. no uh, absolute majority of any parliament. There we go. So that's still been a thing this week, so no change there. On the other hand, uh, the home of the unhinged, Sky News After Dark, they were still going on about it on Monday. Um, Here's Peter Credlin, uh, sorry, uh, at first stumbling over an operator glitch before calling in the egg-headed expert. All right, he's been Labor leader for almost three years, so you think Anthony Albanese would have entered this election briefed and across all the details, but he wasn't. And the polls today show he's paying the penalty. As I said last week, it's a bad start. It'll shake his confidence and perhaps set off a raft of internal recriminations. Well, that's exactly what we saw over the weekend. In an exclusive front page story in the Herald Sun and Daily Telegraph, Labor frontbenchers, policy advisers and campaign hardheads all privately revealing they're unsurprised by Albanese's gaffes and exasperated with Labor's current campaign strategy. National political editor at the Herald Sun, James Campbell, was the author of this exclusive story, and he joins me now. James, were you surprised by the people lining up to criticise Albanese and, uh, and the campaign team from inside Labor's ranks? No, not at all. Um... um, um. No, no, that's enough of him. Uh, to be fair, though, the unhinging level is much the same as usual for Ms Credlin and her guests, uh, but for continuing this silly, silly gaffgate thing, uh, gotcha gate, maybe maybe a plus one on that. 
Uh, I should note that uh, Margaret Simons, who's the journalist of journalism, uh, wrote a piece in the Nine Papers the other day with the headline, Focus on Gaffes Misses the Real Issues. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, but go go to the website for the link and have a read of that. Uh, what else? Um, nothing new has emerged about George Christensen, so no change there. But over on Planet One Nation, uh, they've already dumped Two of their candidates were only two weeks in, uh, according to uh, whichever article it is that I've linked to. Uh, One Nation's um, national executive has unanimously dumped its freedom-aligned candidate for the seat of Brisbane, citing her unwillingness to work with and follow directions from the organisation. A bit too much freedom from the Freedom candidate there. Uh, so her name is Rebecca Lloyd. Uh, she's One Nation's candidate for the marginal seat of Brisbane, which is currently held by a moderate Liberal, by Liberal, by the name of Trevor Evans. Uh, turns out, well, she's pretty much an anti-vaxxer. Well, not anti-vaxxer necessarily, but certainly pushing against the vaccine mandates uh, in the state last year. Rebecca Lloyd is a former professional singer turned digital marketing and small business consultant. Uh, she established uh, a website called Fair Business Australia, which was uh, meant to be a directory and resource hub for business as opposed to vaccine lockouts. So it's a hub rather than a portal. Um, But since she uh, had been endorsed by One Nation, Ms Lloyd had also posted videos urging followers to use a pen when voting uh, uh, and because uh, she's worried about voter fraud, and to hand a statutory declaration to polling booth workers. So I don't, I don't know what of uh, stolen. Well, plus two. Fucking plus two on the unhinging for her. Um, the anti-Murdoch groups calmed down a bit, so I, I had had him on a plus three last week, so I'll put a, on a minus one this week, which takes him back to a plus two from the whole... Th- you, you get what I mean. Uh, Alexander Downer, I mean, he's still deranged, but um, he wasn't deranged about the Australian election this week, so um, uh, minus two from where we were last week. Uh, at the Twitter account, Worst of Ospol, uh, I must get on the people who um, run that, find out who they are. I hope they're not weirdos. Uh, but they uh, noted uh, somewhat the Liberal, Liberal Democrats uh, posted a tweet. Did anyone know that Albo MP grew up in public housing? First, we're hearing of this. Um, no, he's that's not new. If only he'd mentioned every time someone puts a microphone near him for the last 10 years. Oh, I see, they're being ironic. And then Nathan Buckley, 22, on Twitter said, he went to an exclusive private school. Was his mum a MILF? Classy. Uh Nathan Buckley is apparently, as uh, Leo Puglisi notes, an actual One Nation candidate. So for suggesting that Albo only went to an exclusive private school because his mum was a MILF plus one on the unhinged level, for fuck's sake, I went to an an exclusive private school and we were poor as muck. It's because I won a scholarship, you cunts. My mother was not a MILF either. I mean, not that I'm someone to judge and I don't wish to, but, but no. Prue McSqueen, 
the 2GB commentator, uh, said she noted uh, that Albo had COVID-19 and then tweeted, is this nature's way of helping campaign boffins use stand-ins to protect him from more gaffes? <sighs> Plus one hingeometer primix. Although, I mean, a point on some other scale for using the word boffins. Maybe she needs some boffins to protect her from more gaffes. Anyway, plus one there. Um, I went through a lot of the other tweets on um, Worst of Ospol. I'm going to skip over the race. So much racism. So much misogyny. So much appalling commentary about transgendered people. I mean, plus a billion for that, but then that makes this whole segment pointless. Uh, Phil Spencer, PAD Spencer on the Twitter said, Everyone needs to swallow their pride and put Labor first this one time. All that matters is getting rid of this vile government right now while we can still salvage this country. Once Labor are in, do everything possible to shift them left. They will listen. Why would they? Once they're in government, once they've won the election, why would they then change their position? This is... I don't know where this is on John Kadelka's tea towel of, of commentary. If You either know the reference or you don't. I won't link to that. But seriously, this idea that Labor is only saying what they're saying to delude us and then they'll do something different when they're in government? I, I mean, what? That's not a new thing, but it's persistently unhinged. It's the first time I've mentioned it. Plus two. Now... Here's a tweet from Paul Grabowski. Yeah, 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 the the musician and music producer. He said, weird how the ABC's live cross to the very on-point Jason Clare was stymied by bad audio. The evidence is mounting for shoddy coverage and hostile editorialising of Labor. Yeah, this idea that the ABC is deliberately sabotaging um, coverage of Labor's campaigning I mean, plus two. It's just arranged. Live crosses are hard. I'm going to add another. No, make it plus three because Paul Grabowski is a musician. He ought to know better how complicated it is to get audio right when you're live, when there isn't a rehearsal. I mean, because press conferences get called with like 20 or 30 minutes notice. You have to get there. You have to set up. Uh, it's live. It's complicated. For fuck's sake, just because you notice something wrong with a Labor press conference, and yeah, I bet you don't notice when it goes wrong with anyone else's. So what's that? Plus three. I mean, this so stupid. Fund the ABC if you want them to be able to do it better. Or maybe the politicians should actually provide proper scheduling for when they're going to talk to the media. Uh, I'm going to add in another plus one because Twitter showed uh, whoever posted that screenshot they posted that tweet, quote, based on your likes, like this was someone who wasn't following Paul Grabowski um, but thought they should see this tweet. So that's, what's that, a total of plus four just for that screenshot alone, based on your likes. Uh, one more on that, another plus one for this tweet for Peter Stippelt, uh, who said, all those people at Bluesfest say Albo wasn't booed and were stunned to hear the soundtrack as played on ABC News and immediately said that it wasn't the same soundtrack that actually happened. We're being lied to by ABC News. Why and on whose orders? 
the idea that someone ordered the ABC to play a different audio soundtrack, not that it's a soundtrack because it's not a recording. Um, what the fuck is wrong with these people? Um, just just in case you, you, you kind of don't understand how this might happen, when you are sa- standing in a crowd, you are hearing whatever is coming in to your ears at your position in the crowd and what what might be happening uh, over the, the, the PA system from the stage out to you might be the loudest thing, it might not. What's happening on stage or what's broadcast uh, is whatever through uh, is picked up by all the microphones on stage and then mixed through the mixer and then that goes out to what, what what's recording. But then what a news gathering team might have is the microphones on their news camera and the microphone in the hands of the reporter, which, which is somewhere else again in the crowd or in the mix. It is quite normal for different recordings of the same event to have very different sound qualities based on where the microphones were and how their volumes were adjusted at that moment. It's not a conspiracy. It's just relativity. I'm not sure where we're up to, but one more item in the hingeometer. Um, at this very time of recording, the Australian Electoral Commission has thrown out a media release about Mr Rodney Cullerton, who has nominated himself for the Senate. Uh, The AEC notes that the provisions of the Electoral Act do not give the AEC or any AEC officer the power to reject a fully completed candidate nomination, regardless of whether any answer to a question on the checklist is incorrect, false or inadequate. So the AEC is saying they can't reject Rod Cullerton's nomination even if it contains a false declaration as to the eligibility of that person to stand for election. The AEC notes, it goes on to say, that Mr Cullerton is listed on the National Personal Insolvency Index as an undischarged bankrupt. It appears, therefore, that he may have made a false declaration. The AEC has referred this matter to the Australian Federal Police for their consideration because, of course, under the Constitution, Section 44, brackets 3, any person who is an undischarged bankrupt or insolvent shall be incapable of being chosen or of sitting as a senator or a member of the House of Representatives. So it does appear that Rod Cullerton, who was previously chucked out as a senator under Section 44 and and for a while was calling himself a senator in exile, has gone for election to again and the prima facie evidence is that he uh, isn't eligible. So, for Rod Cullerton, having another go, that's plus five on the hingeometer, and I reckon that one, two, I make that a total of plus 30, up 14 points 
from last week on the hingometer. If you dis- disagree with my maths, well, just fuck you. I'm not doing it again. It's my thing. Plus 30. Okay, it's thank God it's Friday. All of that. Um, it's coming up to 5 p.m. as I record this. Okay, um, wine time. Um, but uh, I do want to talk about two other things, um, two things other than the election. First up, um, a tweet from Michael Sainato earlier today. He's a labour and economic justice reporter in the United States. Uh, as you may have known, uh, Amazon has been trying to prevent unions uh, forming within its workers, and yet in New York, um, one of the Amazon warehouses has actually become unionised. Uh, Michael Sainato uh, notes that Amazon is now using the historically infamous Pinkerton security to union bust and surveil its workers. He then links... Uh, to an article, the Pinkertons have a long, dark history of targeting workers at uh, that well-known uh, communist uh, media masthead, Teen Vogue. Yes, yes, them, Teen Vogue, yet again, explaining the history of this stuff. Matthew Garrett on Twitter notes, how the fuck do you hire the literal Pinkertons and not have even a vague, are we the baddies moment? Check out the link. Check out the Pinkertons. Um, they have an incredible history, but at the same time, yeah, they have done a lot of union busting and worker busting over, oh, gee, 140, 150 years now they must have been in operation. Absolutely incredible. The other thing I wanted to mention is that I have been listening to an audio book lately. Well, I listen to them from time to time. But this one is um, the memoir of Miriam Margulies, the British actor. Their memoir is titled This Much Is True. Now, you're going to Miriam Margulies. Okay, she's 82, 83 years old or something now. Australians may remember her as playing uh, the aunt, the recurring character Prudence Stanley in the Australian series Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. I mean, that was between 2012 and 2015. They're great. I mean, I love Miss Fisher. I mean, if only if only for the fashion of the the nineteen twenties. But Miriam Margulies plays plays the the very oh conservative and outraged Prudence Stanley, and people will know her from being a a short and somewhat robust, uh, chunky older woman. Well, I have been loving um, her memoir, which is narrated by herself. Uh, I want to say I'm going to play you two clips. One is. Well, can I just say there's a lot more content about blowjobs than I was expecting. Acting became the focus of my Cambridge world. That and my crush on my moral tutor Leslie Cook, on which more later. Oh, and sucking people off. I didn't have sexual intercourse at Cambridge. Some did. I didn't. It was partly because my parents told me that I mustn't, and also, of course, because I didn't know then that I was gay. 
we called it queer. But I had the usual hormones of a young woman, so I was tearing around rather frustrated. It was imperative to have a boyfriend. There was a competitive element in it. Other people were pairing off, kissing and rubbing and necking, as it was called, and I didn't know what to do with myself. And so I just sucked people off. My prowess at oral sex was well known in Cambridge. I felt it was one of my best things, certainly the sexual activity I'd had most experience of performing. It didn't matter to me whose penis was in my mouth, it was all grist to the mill. I knew I was giving pleasure, which was what delighted me. She does go on to talk about uh, blowjobs and, as the British say, oral sex in more detail as it goes along, and and indeed about her uh, discovering this concept known as lesbianism. Um, I'm still relatively early into it, um, but I have got up to the bit where she talks about being in Cambridge Footlights, uh, which is, of course... I'm sure you know that Cambridge Footlights is the place where a lot of uh, uh, British and especially English uh, comedians make their start. Well, Miriam Margulies does relate how Cambridge Footlights was incredibly sexist uh, back in the day. And indeed, they didn't allow my, uh, female members. In fact, the first female member of Footlights wasn't until 1964, and that was Jermaine Greer. But she goes on. When I say they, I refer to that most distinguished group of John Cleese, Graham Chapman, Bill Oddy, Humphrey Barclay, who became the head of light entertainment for ITV, Tony Hendra and Tim Brooke Taylor. Only two cast members continued to talk to me, Robert Atkins and Nigel Brown. I'd not met studied cruelty like that before. I was 19, and it was painful. I used to go back to my Newnham room and weep. But I got over it. Sort of. In truth, my dislike of that whole, largely male world of comedy has never left me. I feel awkward admitting to such bitterness sixty years later. It seems absurd. It shouldn't matter. I should have got over it. But I haven't. The treatment I received by those boys at Footlights was diminishing, pointed, and vicious. On reflection, it is they who diminished themselves. I admire the Monty Python creation, and I think they were men of genius, but they were not gentlemen. Cleese, Oddy, and Graham Chapman were total shits. That's Miriam Margulies uh, from her memoir, This Much Is True, very recommended by me. And finally, dear listener, as has been the tradition during this election campaign, I'm going to talk about the betting odds. Uh, I will say, apart from the betting odds being broadly bullshit, uh, Cameron Wilson, 
the aforementioned crikey associate editor and friend of the pod, did mention the other day that, of course, apart from it being a relatively small market, the betting companies use these uh, more novelty markets to attract new customers. So they are often done as a, a loss leader. But here we are, um, same, much the same as about a week ago, uh, seventy for a Labor win, $2.10 for a Coalition win, so it has narrowed a bit, uh, $67 for any other combination. Uh, I don't know quite what they mean there. So that's where we are at the moment. That's the thing, and that uh, – oh, fuck it, that's enough for me. If you would like to support this podcast, please just tell your friends – the 9pm edict on their podcast app or go to the 9pm edict.com slash tip and do the needful please help uh, pay my bills the next episode will be in a couple of days with john birmingham and then another election episode on thursday the 28th of april until then i'm still garyan wash your hands and vote early vote often the 9pm edict is a skank media production sorry